0: London-based photographer Gareth McConnell's recent exhibition, The Brighter the Flowers, the Fiercer the Town, invites the viewer to partake in a journey inspired by formative embodied experiences. The show oscillates between raves and funeral processions to present a disparate world of visual references. Like much of Gareth's early work, the photographs are a way to metabolise his upbringing, most specifically growing up during the Troubles in Northern Ireland and its aftermath. For Gareth, creativity emerged from a life of turbulence, A way for him to create space for optimism and utopia, a survival strategy for life.
1: I guess what I was trying to get at was like, beyond all that's going on, beyond the violence, beyond the, you know, the separation, we are united by certain themes, right? Of just people wanting to live their lives.
0: I'm Jen Fletcher and this is The Messy Truth Conversations on Photography. This episode is the second in a three-part special made in collaboration with Scene 15 Gallery. The Troubles Generation, a project by curator Vivian Gamble, invites artists who grew up in Northern Ireland during the Troubles to shed new light on the impact of living in an era of intense sectarian violence. Scene 15 is an independent emerging gallery and project space in Peckham, South East London, that champions contemporary photography with a focus on emerging, diverse and experimental artists who are expanding the boundaries of the medium. Let's jump into my conversation with Gareth McConnell. One of the things that I found out about you was that you studied under Paul C, right?
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. And I wondered what that experience was like for you and if it informed your work.
1: Oh, that was absolutely massive. Like, I mean, that was like a totally, like, I mean, not to be like overly dramatic, but like a totally life-changing experience because I went and did... You know, I did an art foundation in Belfast at York Street and York Street is was like one of the, like, I went there when it was still like, I mean, it's still an art college and it's still a really great art college, but I mean, it was like a proper art college then, you know, it was amazing place. And, uh, you know, like really kind of like run down and wild and huge and like lectures and like, you know, kind of did, you know, painting and sculpture and like all this sort of stuff. And then, you know, I got Paul C. Wright for a week. And at that point, Paul was really only four or five years older than me, I would have thought, or like maybe a little bit more. But he had just come back from doing his degree in Farnham. And it just made that work, you know, sectarian murder sites, which just absolutely blew me away. You know, I'd just never seen anything like that, you know, in terms of, like, my understanding of art or photography. You know, my idea of a photograph would have been, like, of a car or, like, you know, I might have known, well, I would have known, like, who Andy Warhol was or something or, like, you know, like you know, a Marilyn Monroe screen print as art, you know, maybe I'd have seen some like Richard Avedon, but I probably couldn't have told you who it was to kind of see someone like Paul and, and what he was doing, like just totally blew me away. And then he sent me up to the library to look at, you know, all the old copies of Creative Camera magazine. I don't know if you remember, well, I'm sure you remember Mm. Creative Camera, which was that kind of like, you know, very, you know, like kind of lefty arts photo mag coming out of with. David Brittain and Val Williams and stuff. I think at that time, I think it had loads of people that I'm probably totally wrong in that, but you know, whoever. And anyway, I, I looked at all that and, uh, And I remember seeing Willie Doherty in there as well and like that just was like, you know, the idea of people coming from Northern Ireland and like, you know, making work about Northern Ireland. Obviously it was like conceptual art or it was like those kind of text pieces. You know, remember the one that always stuck in my mind was Never Forsake the Blue Skies of Ulster for the Great Mist of an Irish Republic. And that was actually written on a wall down the road from my house, so that like kind of like really resonated with me. But anyway, so yeah, so Paul, meeting Paul, massive, and then he was like, yeah, you should go to West Surrey College of Art and Design to do this degree, because it's really brilliant, and he gave me a really good recommendation, and that was me. I was off to, after that I was off to Art College.
0: I was really fascinated to read that your work is informed by rave culture, which is something that I've been writing and thinking about a lot recently as this kind of subculture that brought all kinds of people together mm. from different lived mm. experiences, mm. but also this idea of like dancing being an equalizing practice, yeah, which I found quite powerful. And I wondered mm. if you could talk a little bit about your experience of rave culture and how that, feeds into your work
1: mm. well i mean the other thing you know to say about york street and belfast it's where they held loads of raves in the connor hall and it was an interesting venue because it was like no man's land in the sense in a good sense of like it wasn't protestant it wasn't catholic it was a like you know autonomous so you got a very very mixed crowd there and i mean it was david holmes was the big night sugar Sweet, and the 80s the start of the 90s You know, I had awareness of like, you know, acid house and stuff happening, I guess, like, you know, what a kind of limited, a limited experience is the wrong way of putting it, but I hadn't like, you know ecstasy was so expensive it was like 20 pounds ago and stuff we had used to take a lot of acid and wander about and get up to stuff but mm-hmm. the experience of like you know going to the art college and like you know having that very kind of archetypal experience of like taking ecstasy and like dancing all night and meeting all these people and like kind of the shattering of boundaries i mean it just blew me away like i mean the night that that happened properly I went to Sugar Suite, then ended up at some like other rave. I don't, I don't even know where it was, but I just remember coming out into the light the next day and like, and I walked all the way home to Carrick, which is about 12 miles, I guess, and, you know, listening to the birds sing and all the rest of it. So, you know, and got home and went upstairs and got all my old vinyl and put it under the bed because he just thought, right, we'll sleep when we're dead from here on in and it'll be repetitive beats and, you know, going out and all the rest of it. And I mean, and a lot of it was really great. But, you know, that is something I look back on. And I think because, like, particularly in terms of psychedelics, you know, people like Albert Hoffman and stuff, when he would have been, you know, in... That book, LSD, My Problem Child, whatever, you know, he'd be talking about set and setting in terms of, like, you know, how you do these things. And I think, you know, there was a lot of, like, obviously a lot of trauma in the air. I would hate to go to give the impression that it was all sweetness and light because it just really wasn't. There was a huge mix of people and it was like amazing to be in amongst all that and meet all lots of different people from, you know, different backgrounds and religions. And, you know, to the extent of like people in different gangs or organisations or whatever it was, you know, whether someone's a doctor or like a kind of paramilitary. But yeah, it was very mixed, but like very seductive.
0: Do you think about it informing your work?
1: Oh, no, for sure. Like for sure. Yeah. Like, I mean, on lots of levels. I guess, which now I can't think of. But uh, no, (laughs) like, I mean, in different ways, you know, like I think just the fact of like having that experience really opened my mind up to like uh, a different place. And I think like even, you know, like this, you know, this work that uh, I just showed at Vivian with the flowers and stuff, you know, like I remember uh, walking home from that rave or that night And like having a completely different understanding of nature up until it had at that point in terms of like observing and, uh, you know, and I guess like later on, like, you know, having some other concept in terms of like the observed and the unobserved world, the dualistic and the non-dualistic and like, you know, what you see, photographic seeing, all this sort of stuff.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it's had a really big impact.
1: Well, I think, like for everyone, it did. Obviously, that's not exclusive to Northern Ireland, but uh, I'm definitely that would have been the kind of big, big moment of my teens. Yeah,
0: you mentioned the sectarian murals a little minute ago, which yeah. are these very visceral abstractions, which kind of have this sense of sort of artistic rebellion. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the idea behind that project and sort of how it came into being.
1: Sectarian murals appear throughout not just Northern Ireland, but mainly Northern Ireland, you know, like, I guess. You have the Protestant community, the Catholic community, the Loyalist community, Loyalist slash Protestant, the Catholic slash nationalist, and these murals would often depict, you know, historical scenes, particularly in the Loyalist community. There's a lot of, like, King Billy, remember 1690, you know, the B Specials, the UDA, the UF, UVF, different paramilitary organisations, fallen soldiers, you know, people who have like done this or that, you know, all this sort of stuff, prisoners, whatever, right? And, uh, and these tend to mark out, you know, the different territories of the country. And the same with the Catholic nationalists. Although these can vary, and you know theirs can be maybe I don't know, like different themes. Maybe less like focused on particular historic events. Although they do do that also. But they might have like more worldwide allegiances. They might like. You know, do something with Palestine, or like, you know, more human rights based, or but you get these, but they have the same things as well. You know, remembering, you know, martyred hunger strikers or whatever, and you know, these appear throughout the country, predominantly in working class areas, and they would be made, painted by people within the community. So anyway, so but there, you know, there would have been like. A, you know, a a very heavy feature of how the troubles were portrayed in the media, you know, along with, like, you know, armoured vans or kids throwing rocks or guys in balaclavas or whatever, right? But anyway, so I thought, like, whenever I was uh, starting to photograph these, I thought, you know, I really wanted to shut them down from all those readings, you know, so, like, you could no longer figure out the geography. You couldn't figure out the allegiances, the you know, to really take it away from all this stuff. So we're looking more at, like, kind of colour and form and, you know, taking it more into a world of art, I guess, or, like, you know, abstraction and, you know, and maybe, you know, just trying to get beyond that, that, like, I guess what I was trying to get at was, like, beyond all that's going on, beyond the violence, beyond the, you know, the separation. We are united by certain themes, right, of just people wanting to live their lives and get on with it. You know what I mean? Like so I guess yeah. I was looking at like at a more utopian optimistic idea. You know, I guess at that time I would have been reading, you know, concerning the Spiral children art by Kantinsky or whatever. Like you know trying to, you know, think about like, you know, modernism painting and, you know, trying to find those themes and like impose that on the photographs. Whether like how well that worked, I don't know, you know, like I've kind of Actually, just been going back to it a bit recently, having a look at it and, uh, you know, trying to resolve all that. But that's what I would have been thinking.
0: It feels so radical to think about the work now and how it would have been in such contrast to the tropes or stereotypes being perpetuated by photojournalists at the time. It feels like you found this way to create a completely different, opposing visuality of a place Mm. a really challenging time and the way you describe it then it sounds like it it really sounds like art making was a survival strategy for you a way to imagine a different way of being
1: yeah do you know i've just been reading recently i'm I'm only halfway through it but i've been reading like that darian leader book the new black which is mourning melancholia and depression and like You know, talking about that, you know, about like that kind of art being that, you know, expression. How can, you know, creativity, you know, emerge from the turbulence? But like what you're saying, I would subscribe to because I look back at all this stuff and like how compelled I was to do it. Because I think, you know, beyond my naivety, you know, I really did want to try and grasp some understanding. You know, when I think back of it, you know, and just... You know, the timing of it all, you know, like, you know, born in 72, parents, kind of post-war babies, my grandparents would have, you know, worked in shorts, building, you know, airplanes for the war, whatever. And then 1972 was the most violent year of the Troubles, you know, like, and I'm not like saying, you know, I just mean that like for my generation of people, you know, I think, you know, a lot happened, particularly... You know, in the 90s and stuff, you know, the 90s were amazing in one sense of, like, all the rave thing happening and like, you know, sure, like, but 90s Northern Ireland was wild. You know, I remember when the OMA bomb went off and I just thought, this is it. You know, the OMA bomb, I think, I can't remember how many people exactly were killed in it, but it was over 40, I believe. And whenever that went off, I just thought, oh, this is it. It's going to be, like, out and out civil war now. Like, not to say it wasn't a civil war before that, but I really thought it was really going to go off, you know, and just the stuff, like, you know, I'm sure you remember, like, you know, Michael Stone at Milltown Cemetery and, and how that was portrayed in the media, you know, whenever they showed the British soldiers being executed and stuff. And, you know, it was, like, really so heavy, you know, and I think, you know, it was, like, definitely really compelled to, to make, work about that and I think you know like as I've got older you know I've allowed myself to go yeah like you were you were an artist you are an artist you were an artist then you were an artist before then you know like I mean that's why I used to get in so much trouble you know it'd be like I'd be at school and like wear whatever mad clothes and grow my hair and people would be like oh why would you do that or that or you're this or you're that and like but uh, I think it was just in me. Mm-hmm. You know, and I don't come from that background. Like I mean, none of my family were artists or have any connection to that world whatsoever. My parents have my stuff all around their house, but no member of my family no family friend has ever even asked me for one of my pictures <laughs> I, mean, I was you know what i mean it's just like just not there like it's like although it is worth saying that my mum did do a photography course and that's why we had a camera in the house because she went to a local night class at one of the schools and yeah she she came back with all these pictures of guitars shaped like ak-47s and stuff and it turns out like one of the other guys in the class. There were a couple that was actually, was, he was in a band called Stiff Little Fingers who actually went on, they're a really famous Northern Irish punk band, but like, but uh, that went on to have a massive revival after this. But anyway, at the time he was really down in his luck and he used to come around our house and try and teach me how to play the guitar when I was about 15 or so. And, uh, and I think that's really when like, you know, the creative juices started flowing because I wanted to be in a band so badly and I wanted to play the guitar and do all this, but it was just absolutely rubbish at it. So I think, like, you know, to, to be an artist or to do something like that was the next best thing.
0: You've made this new body of work, The Bright of the Flowers, The Fierce of the Town, which we're going to talk about in a minute, but in between that time... You did a lot of other projects. You did some commercial work. You did a lot of editorial work. And I was curious, what drew you back to making work about Northern Ireland again? Do
1: you know I think I should probably say? I probably didn't start out making work about that. I I kind of, like, came to realise that that's part of it, you know? So that show, yeah, like, at Scene 15, you know, the title comes from... A text by Susan McKay and Susan McKay is like, I guess she's a big voice on the Northern Irish Protestant people. And she interviewed me back in 2000 about the Albert Bar, which was terrifying, like on lots of levels, you know, because much like I am am now or much more so at that point, at that point, I was very concerned about, you know, saying too much or getting myself in any trouble and so the, so that recent work, that show is all k- kind of, uh, well, it's all flower pictures. It's all still life. And uh, I'd been doing those for a while and I got commissioned by Freeze last year to do all their advertising on a special project for the magazine and all the rest of it. And and I got interviewed for it and I was kind of so unhappy with the interview that I realised that I really had to have a good think about what it was it was you know, trying to achieve. And uh, so I entered into a kind of period of discussion with a, a writer friend of mine, you know, to talk about all this. And I think that's really what emerged from it, was that this had a lot of links mm. back there. and So I guess it's just that practice before theory, theory before practice, seeing what comes out, you know. But to talk about the other stuff, like I think that's, I what happened was that in two thousand and four I got nominated for a contemporary photographer's monograph with photo works and I ended up I got this book published by Stadel in two thousand and four and it was essentially just really my student work so it was like murals you know uh, anti-social behaviour which was scars of of uh, you know punishment beatings anti-social behaviour part two which was kind of you know, big close-ups of, like, intravenous wounds from drug-taking and, and, you know, there was some flower stuff, Albert Barr, all this here. So I ended up, I got this book published and Charlotte Cotton did an interview and got a couple of essays and Stadel published it and it got distributed around the world. Nigel Schaffron did the other book at the time. That was me and him were the first ones then. It was Bettina von Spey, Sophie Ricketts. Dan Holdsworth, that sort of stuff. But anyway, so what happened was that just kind of like completely, you know, propelled me in a different sphere in the sense that my phone started ringing or whatever, you know. So, you know, suddenly at the New York Times asking me to do things and suddenly I was like travelling around the world and doing all this very seductive stuff. But I think really, you know, I look back on it, I think it was like in a lot of avoidance also, you know what I mean I was mm. there's an expression you know that I was looking for the easier softer way you know what I mean and
0: yeah
1: and I also wanted to you know make money and, and do all this sort of stuff and and I guess you know off the back of that also there, there came some art world involvement you know and I started selling work for the first time and that's actually when I did my first flower pictures were at that time called night flowers and you know, showed those at Freeze and Carl Friedman Gallery and stuff. And so I guess it was like a lot of stuff going on. And it's, it's just the life that you come around again, you know, you start trying to look at really what's important and, and what it is you want to say.
0: What drew you to flowers? Because as you say, you've had this relationship with them in your work for quite a long time now.
1: Yeah. Um, I don't know. They're just nice, aren't they? The flowers are nice. <laughs> They are nice. They are nice. No, like, but seriously, like, I mean, I think it is that thing, you know, it's going back to, say, leaving that party that I mentioned back in 1990 or whatever it was, right? And, like, walking home and, like, looking at the flowers and the foliage and all the rest of it and suddenly having a different connection with nature or something, right? You know, so there's all that. And then, you know, there was later later on, I guess... I remember coming back to London and been down in the south coast. I'd actually not been very well, and I came back to London and I remember, you know, just being in London and it was spring and like there was all these incredible cherry blossoms under the the street lights, and I was just like, I don't know, it just like really spoke, you know, spoke to me. It was just like so beautiful, I couldn't like, you know, I was just like, it was just so beautiful. So I spent. You know many many nights wandering around the streets like photographing flowers that illuminated by street light just with my camera and a tripod and i guess that's where it started and then like you know although they have appeared in other work but i think that was like less conscious there's there's some in a in a project called the undertakers which was from around the same time as the albert bar as well like 1998. And, uh, but i just think you know there's just so much you can do with them and like on so many different levels right you know there's all the kind of graving stuff you know going back to that darian leader stuff right of like you know if this is like you know like art as some kind of mourning almost right mm. thinking about that thinking of like You know, and this really, I guess a lot of this really came after the fact, you know, but really thinking back to, like, flowers and coffins, the endless processions, you know, like, I'm talking about, like, you know, I'm thinking about my upbringing in, like, kind of, like, 70s, 80s, 90s Northern Ireland, when, like, every time you, like, switched on the TV or opened a paper you know, there was something that had happened. And, you know, so there'd be, like, the endless kind of funeral processions, you know, the flowers and coffins, the kind of people stood beside the road. There's this incredible photograph of, like, I can't remember who took it, but it's it's of Frizzell's chip shop on the Shankle Road. And uh, the crowd, you know, when it got blown up and uh, just all these people and just the flowers everywhere. And, like, you know, when Neil Bryan and his text, for the show at Vivian's called The Meaning of Flowers. You know, he says this thing about, you know, like, I've actually got a copy of... He goes... Yeah, weeping families in black, not psychedelia, flowers, flowers in and on horse vehicles, linked arms, carrying coffins with flowers, crowds holding flowers, TV cameras filming the flowers, police standing beside the flowers, Enemies see the beauty of each other's flowers, flower wreaths, mums, dads, sons, daughters, brothers, sisters, cousins, uncles, aunts, friends, colleagues, local tradespeople, neighbours. Oh, it's so heavy, right? Like, but like, you know, like, Mm. you know, but like, you know, kind of that sort of thing, right? But other aspects too, you know, like of like the environmental catastrophe, for instance you know, that we're seem to be living through, you know, like kind of you know, I remember seeing this like amazing Alora and Caldasada piece at The Welcome Trust. Oh my god, I can't believe this. I can't remember the name of it. But basically, you know, like it's filmed under one of those huge like space microphones or whatever where they're listening for like voices off in outer space to see if there's aliens and stuff. And uh, but right underneath this structure there's a really rare species of parrot, and they ended up you know there's this whole thing of like you know this parrot could like you know learn could communicate with humans or you know learn all these different words or, you know whatever it's like kind of like hard to tell whether it's fact or fiction all this stuff you're listening to but basically the whole premise of it is you know of like you know here we are trying to look You know, let you know look for aliens, but like missing what's right in front of us. You know, the absolute like glory and an abundance of nature. You know, the you know the unknowable. You know, mind of God. You know, expressing himself through these crazy things. You know, and like you know how dependent on human survival we are. For you know the humble little flower coming up through the crack in the pavement. You know, for you know for pollination you know and you know all this here whatever it is you know you go anywhere with it you know like you know sat there in your armchair like injecting drugs like kind of like seeing the bloom of blood in the barrel you know or like whatever you know it's like you know i guess it's like i think i much more i just like kind of like make the work and then like maybe the understanding comes later or i have that idea like if art is like you know you know, the, you, you have an idea and you put something into production, you know, fruition, and then think about it
0: mm-hmm. or, or,
1: or have other people think about it.
0: You just really did such a great job at unpacking how personal and loaded this show, this body of work is. And I guess to sort of speak to what you just said about this idea of like sort of following your gut or your intuition and making the work and kind of reflecting on it later, I'm curious how you're feeling in the making process? Is that a very cathartic space for you? I'm just curious what your state of mind is while you're making these, like, what are astoundingly beautiful and intense images of flowers?
1: I usually enjoy myself once I get going, but, like, I have to make myself do it. Generally, once I can kind of step over the threshold and action, you know, once I can defeat my procrastination and start the process it's usually pretty good like in terms even of like you know going and finding the flowers you know which is generally me but in about you know hackney on my bike like looking for things you know and around about or someone's garden or coming over a wall or whatever right and then like you know so kind of going and get that and like i mean i guess there's like you know that process you know even that process there's something beautiful in, you know, in the sense of, like, on a bike and movement, looking, finding, gathering, appreciating, you know. And then there's the, you know, the compositional aspect of, like, you know, arranging and the setting, the lighting, you know. And then there's the there's the actual photography, you know, which is, like, often, you know, but not always. Yeah, like, really enjoyable or like trying to summon something up and joy not that it it you know doesn't always work but uh you know and then yeah for sure like the kind of the flow of ideas about the work or about just things in general while you're doing that is it's good like often what i really love is you know because of you know a lot of the lenses and stuff i'm using are very close up and and uh you know i'm using a medium format camera looking through the the viewfinder and like you know maybe like a little spider will walk through or you know some amazing little insect will just kind of pause in front of me. You know it's not that I I wonder need to photograph that but just like that kind of little connection feels like it you know means something you know or gives me you know just that little more like you know connectedness or appreciation of the wonder of like consciousness.
0: And you've cultivated such a strong visual language over the years, but particularly, you know, it's so palpable in this show, this, you know, everyone loves to say your hallucinogenic colour palette. But I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about what informs this visual aesthetic, because it is so disarming and so distinctly you.
1: Mm. Raven. (laughs)
0: Lots
1: of drugs and lights and the usual, like, what, like, as... As uh, Andy Weatherall used to say, like the kind of like the Gnostic ceremony, you know, light, smoke, music, herbs, whatever. But yeah, no, I think like, you know, that's all been part of it for sure. You know, a lot of those very simple, well, like let's just say even like light and music. So say I'm even, you know, kind of like using the palette of rave in a way or something. I don't want to separate any more than I already have. Mm. I think like it's trying to, to make try make work that's somehow like more unifying, if that makes sense.
0: It makes total sense. Flowers are such a well-worn subject in the mm. history of art. Mm. Was there a challenge there for you to make it personal for yourself in your own practice? Yeah, of
1: course. That's the fun bit. You know, like, you know, like it's that thing of like, you know, how do you make it your own? Like, and I guess that was like, you know, when we spoke about the murals, I thought, well, how do I make this my own? How do you do this? How do you treat this subject? You know, I made this series of work uh, I've mentioned a couple of times before called Antisocial Behaviour. And the the more successful aspect of that the, that work, I feel, was the second part, which was Antisocial Behaviour Part 2, which was close-ups of like people injecting and blood spurting out of groins and stuff like this right but it was like I shot it from about nine inches away it was on a wide angle lens It was very close it was studio lit it was like you know f32 or whatever you know with the background and so basically I was trying to go well what's you know, the archetype of, like, of drug photography, right? And I think, all right, Tulsa, Larry Clark, you know, amazing book. Like, I mean, don't get me, like, absolutely, Tulsa is just a, an incredible photo book and an incredible, you know, use of, of image and text. You know, I think there's only about t- 20 words in it, but, like, like good book. But there's absolutely no need for me to remake that work at all, right? Although obviously lots of other people feel differently because it's endlessly churned out, isn't it? But like, mm-hmm. so it's like, you know, so I guess that is the continually the thing for me of like, and I guess the excitement of photography is that like, you know, how do you take these very basic things, you know, like a camera, you know, a tripod, a light meter, you know, a light whatever that is you know like and make something that isn't derivative you know I can have appreciation for all that's come before me but I don't have to try and remake it as much and all as it's consciously or unconsciously you know informing me
0: you might have just answered my next question but to finish up I wanted to ask you the question that I ask everybody at the end of the show and that's what matters more to you the process of making the work or the final photograph I
1: think the final photograph. But maybe it's the process. Both? <laughs> yeah, no, I don't know. Like I mean I guess there's like I mean there is something like enormously, you know, satisfying on like in getting something that works at the end. But then but then that can all change as well, can't it? It's like what works twenty years ago doesn't work now or vice versa, but I guess it's a, it would have to be, yeah, a combination. You have to engage in the, in the act, isn't it? Like, I mean, that's the thing of, like, that is the great battle, isn't it? Is to actually just to do it, you know, like, and I mean, I guess that uh, I can make a living doing this stuff is fucking incredible, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, I do think of that every day, you know, when I, like, you know, that I can do this is great, that I don't have to do something that I hate is amazing and that I'm very grateful for it.
0: It was so good to speak to you, Gareth. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to The Messy Truth. You can find more information about today's guests in the show notes. Theme music is changed by Judd Greenstein from the album Awake and design is by Ruby White. You can follow updates on the podcast on my Instagram at jemfletcher or subscribe to my newsletter at gemfletcher.com. Feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts.